This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Here with Dr. Dave Mills. Thank you for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. And also in the room is Dr. Bill Nance. Good to have you. And Dr. Nance is one of our World War II experts, and so he will be weighing in as well throughout the discussion. Uh, Dr. Mills is with us today to talk about the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, one of the more momentous events of the late 20th century, um, certainly kind of in the culture of, of the West, uh, what used to be called the First and Second Worlds. Um, but before we get to the, kind of the end of the story, uh, I think it makes sense to start back at the beginning. So, Dr. Mills, if you would walk us through how we got to a divided Germany, a divided Berlin, and then a physical wall across Berlin. Yeah, so the, the story is, is actually one that you wouldn't think of. It was actually a, a great idea among... Uh, allies that were willing to work with each other and willing to uh, trust each other. And in fact, it was the, uh, the, the Russians, the Americans, and the British who came together and said, you know, the, the uh, rise of Germany for the second time in less than a quarter of a century is uh, kind of ominous. Maybe we should do something to ensure that they don't rise for a, for a third time. And so the idea was to divide into occupation zones Three occupation zones initially. And this is in 1945? Yeah, this is in 1945. In fact, it's, it's kind of amazing how little thought is going into the occupation until the very end, until, until the war is nearly won. In fact, it's, it's after the war is won at, at uh, Potsdam in July of 45 that they really finalize some of these ideas, like giving the French an occupation zone. Roosevelt had said that he couldn't foresee U.S. occupation forces being in Germany for longer than two years, which made the British pretty nervous. So they want to bring the French in to make sure they've got an ally to keep an eye on a, a Germany that might try and remilitarize. And so because the, the four powers had agreed that they would, would govern the nation or the, the, govern Germany, um, as one economic unit, they decided and agreed that any decision would have to be unanimous. And they were never unanimous. They could not get the French and the Soviets particularly to agree on how this thing was going to work. And so what ended up happening was the, the different zone commanders ended up being the, the military governor and um, and started making decisions on their own, which just kind of led to the idea of independent zones. And then the uh, the, the, the Russians are, are propping up a communist government, the, the allies prop up, although they hide the, the idea of a democratic government, at least at first. Uh, the, the three zones, the, the French, the British, and the American zones are united in 1949 into the Federal Republic of Germany, which throws off any pretense of ever reuniting the entire nation again. And um, 
And, and so now you've got these lines that are drawn. In, in just four short years, you have 1945, the Allies are, are adamant that they are going to work together. They, they are going to rule together. And just four years later, they, they throw in the towel and say, this is too hard. We are never going to be able to do this. And so lines are drawn into a, the communist camp and the, and the democratic camp. Right. And so now you've got the, the division of Germany. Okay, and so we now have Germany divided between um, these these two kind of competing polities, and if I remember correctly, they don't quite cohere until the mid '50s. You don't have official governments in Bonn and East Berlin until then. So yeah, so so there's this transition point between 1949 and 1955. The the West German government is established, but they've still got to run some of these ideas through the, the, the occupation powers and, and, um, and that. And so uh, it was not until 1955 that the West Germans are actually allowed to or, or persuaded to rearm as, as a direct uh, threat against the, uh, the, the Soviets in the, in the Warsaw Pact, which becomes a thing in 1955 as well. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a transition between 49 and, and 55. Okay, so we've been talking about West Germany and East Germany and the, the democratic and communist sectors. Be interested to talk about what is the special status of Berlin specifically within that? And if you could talk also a little bit about the uh, uh, Berlin airlift and the blockade the Soviets put in place. Yeah, so the, the, the country itself is divided in four, but remember the, the four powers had agreed that they would govern these four zones together, right? There, there are four zones, but they would come together and make joint decisions that would impact the entire nation. They couldn't do that, but but they had decided that in order to facilitate they're working together, they would have to be somewhere where these representatives could meet. And it was decided that that someplace was going to be Berlin. And so Berlin is also divided into four occupation zones, uh, the British, the United States, the Soviet Union, and, and the French. And so just like it happens across the country, the city of Berlin is also divided communist section and the and the democratic section or, or the western powers section now one of the biggest problems that the communists had was they invaded and take berlin and they find the printing presses to the at the reichsbank still intact they just start printing money uh 24 hours a day because you know an occupation army is very expensive feeding right. people is very expensive and so it just shatters the the economy and, uh, and so the, the Western powers in 1948 simply take all of the communist currency out of circulation and replace it with a, with a, new, with a new currency, and it makes a, a fundamental difference. The, the people in Berlin are absolutely starving. There's no consumer goods to be had at any price because there is no incentive for people to manufacture things, bring them to market, or farmers to bring things to market where you're going to be paid in worthless cash. And so reintroducing this new currency, or introducing this new currency, fundamentally changed the economy for the Western sector, for, for, the, uh, for the allied sector. Now, there's all kinds of food showing up in the, in the Western 
portion of Berlin, not so much in the east uh, portion of Berlin. It's humiliating and it's undermining the legitimacy of the communist government. And so Stalin uh, cuts off access to the western portion of Berlin, cuts off the rail, rail lines, the barge traffic on the river and, and the road traffic and says, oh, by the way, if you will withdraw this currency, we'll open up the, the access to the city again. And the West refuses. Takes a little over a year for the, the, uh, the Berlin airlift to, uh, to run its course until the Soviets simply give up. Uh, and, and then we continue the airlift for another six months just because it's that humiliating to our adversaries, the, uh, the East Germans and, and the Soviets. But um, yeah, so, so it was really an economic thing that is driving the, the Berlin airlift as much as an ideological thing as well. Now, moving out of Germany just for a minute, but I think mm -hmm. it's connected, is, is that in the 50s, you also had a significant event occurring in Hungary as well. Can you talk to me about how uh, the events in Hungary in the 50s inter uh, kind of interact with uh, the Soviets' perceptions and how they're dealing with the rest of what would become the Eastern Bloc nations? Yeah, so 1956, I mean, there, there are a number of uprisings around Eastern Europe. All, all of them re revolve around more autonomy and, and, and self-government or, or freedom to determine your, your government. 1956, there is a, a push, push back against the Soviets by the Hungarians. They want a representative democracy. And the, the Soviets absolutely crush this uprising. They arrest the ringleaders, they're, they're executed. Um, and the message is sent throughout Eastern Europe not to try this, not to push their luck with the Soviets. This is what happens when you, when you question our authority. Yeah, and you're, you're talking about a lot of very interesting events, um, but they're spread over time. Right. And I think one of the important things for, for listeners to understand is this, this Cold War didn't happen by flipping a switch in 1947. No. The, the antipathy between the Allies in 1945 and eventually, uh, I referenced earlier, the First and Second Worlds, the West and the Soviets, that developed really over kind of a half a generation. It was not quick. And... Um so even even the date uh, that uh, when you ask somebody, so when did the Cold War start? Uh, you, you're, as many people as you ask, that's how many different answers you're going to get. Uh, the The official answer is it depends, right? It, it depends on which event you see as a fundamental turning point. Was it in 1945 when with the division of Europe, maybe, uh, or, or not the, the uh, division of of Germany? And, uh, or, or was it 1946 when Stalin gives his famous speech at the Bolshoi Theater and says, we can't live with the capitalists? Well, that's one of them. Or, or was it 1947 when George Kennan gives his long telegram and says that we simply can't work with the Soviets. They're just not trustworthy. And, or was it the Truman Doctrine of 1947 that says we will defend all free people uh, trying to avoid the communist takeover. And, and so the answer is yes. All of these things, I think, kind of compounded and compiled together formed the beginning of the Cold War. 
I, I think fundamentally you can certainly draw a line by 1949 when, when we simply give up on the idea of reuniting all of Germany under, under one government. And, uh, and we create the Federal, uh, Federal Republic of Germany or, or West Germany. Because Germany has got the same problem that Vietnam does and that Korea does. How can you reunite a country that's half communist and half democratic? Neither side, neither, neither parent organization, be it the Soviet Union or the United States, is going to be okay with surrendering or, or, uh, or, or being soft on communism. Or, and, and the communists, the Soviets have the same problem that we do, which is internal politics. I mean, the, the, at the time, you know, the 1946 midterm elections, the Democrats are absolutely crushed by the Republicans. One of the major talking points for the Republicans is, hey, the Democrats are soft on communism. I mean, it's one of these refrains that you're going to hear for the next 30 years, 40 years. Including Richard Nixon. Absolutely. Yeah. He was, if he hadn't been such a staunch anti-communist during the 1950s, he, he might have been impeached in the 1970s for going to, to China. Now, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but there would have been a number of people who would have been pretty upset uh, uh, recognizing China, giving them that legitimacy on the international stage when Nixon goes to China um, in 1972. Yeah, and we also have this complicating factor of, you know, we, we present the Cold War as being between communism and democracy, but, you know, I'm, I'm doing air quotes around democracy. That often looks like fascism, especially, at, you know, even in the, the first and second worlds, but especially in the third world. For those folks uh, that we are dealing with on an international basis during the Cold War, you're, uh, you're either with us or against us. And so if, if you're not... Uh, if, as long as you're not communist, we're okay in a lot of instances with whatever you are. Right? We can work with you. You might be a dictator, but you're our, our dictator. or You're on our side type thing. And it's, it's made for strange bedfellows throughout the, throughout the Cold War. So let's take this uh, as we're going forward. So we have this era of increasing tensions throughout the 40s and into the 50s. Yeah. So what, is some of the, what are some of the kind of the precipitating events that culminate in the Berlin Wall? And why did the Soviets take that approach? Uh, so, yeah, how about we get back to the Berlin Wall rather than allowing me to ramble on about, uh, about the Cold War. So the Berlin Wall was an interesting response to this, this fundamental divide between uh, the, the, the communists in the East and, and the Allied powers in the West. And, and the fundamental problem was an economic one. Uh, remember I said that the, the currency reform in the West had led to a fundamentally different and better economy. People were coming from East Berlin into West Berlin to work and earn the Deutschmarks rather than the, the old Reichsmarks that the, that the communists used. So if you were working in West Berlin, you got paid in the new currency. You could shop in the new grocery stores and the new supermarkets. and and you could find all those consumer goods that you couldn't find in, in the East. And this was devastating and, and, and theor fundamentally undermined the very legitimacy of the existence of the Communist Party. All of the promises that the Communists made uh, or continued to make 
were absolutely a, a, a joke when you looked at the way that the people in the West lived and the way that the people in the East Berlin lived. And so more than anything, the, the Berlin Wall was an attempt to prevent people in the East from, from either working in the West, watching what is going on in the West, and, and worst of all, fleeing to the West. And in between 1945 and 1961, three and a half million people leave the East and flee to the West. That three and a half million people in, in the United States, not a lot. In East Germany, that's 20% of their population has fled. So in 1952, they had, uh, the, the East Germans had, had constructed a border wall, or sorry, a border fence along the entire length of their country in order to prevent people fleeing from east to west. They couldn't do that in Berlin because of the joint occupation. They couldn't really figure out how to make that happen. Until 1961, they, they simply said, hey, we're going to do it anyway. We don't really care how it looks. It's, it's going uh, it's, it's to be an eyesore. It's going to be a propaganda boon for the west. But we have got to stem the flow of people fleeing from, from east to west. And so the border wall, August 12th, 1961, the uh, East German army, the Soviet army is, is mobilized. They're, they're told about midnight, hey, starting tomorrow, nobody can travel from, from east to west. We're closing down access points bet, uh, in, in, in and around Berlin. And so the next day, the people of Berlin wake up to a divided city. There, there are soldiers standing there preventing anybody from traveling from east to west. They're, as they, they put up barbed wire fences, and then a few days later, they start with a, a concrete block wall to take the place of the barbed wire. And I think there are three or four different iterations of the wall over the course of the years. But, but pretty, pretty soon, they, they've got a, a concrete wall to prevent people from simply walking across from one, from one nation, from one ideology to the next. Now, what's interesting is about this, and uh, for someone growing up during uh, the 80s, I kind of had this image of the wall just kind of just being a linear obstacle, but it was actually a circle. It encircled the entire uh, So you, there was a circle right. uh, where West Berlin was basically contained inside of East Germany entirely. That's right. Can you talk somewhat about the, because in many ways the Berlin Wall became kind of the symbol of the Cold War in a lot of ways. There's a lot of cultural baggage associated with it. So from, can you talk about kind of, where uh, some of the some of just kind of how they how that impacted uh, people how people thought about the Cold War. So, if anything, that that was a visible symbol of of the Cold War. How the East Germans had to erect a barrier to keep people in, uh, as as opposed to allowing people the freedom to move back and forth, and or a, a border wall which is normally built to keep people out. Exactly. I mean, this is fundamentally to to treat people like um, like like they are, they are enslaved. They are uh, um, um, property of the state, so to speak. And and it is it is the symbol of of the Cold War. The the idea that. Uh, that you've got to erect a barrier to prevent people from fleeing your your communist 
paradise. And, and so the propaganda doesn't match the reality. And everybody knew it. Um, and, and so it, it was a fundamental weakness, and it fundamentally undermined the credibility of the Soviet Union and communism, that, but they didn't care. And, uh, and, and so when you, you've got a lot of people who, who are trying all kinds of crazy ideas and ingenious ideas to be able to escape. From the time the wall is put up, about 100,000 people still tried to flee from east to west. I think about 5,000 made it and between 100 and 200 people were killed in trying to, uh, trying to flee the, the east. So, so, so uh, we've now got, by 1961, we've got this East Berlin that is cut off from West Berlin. Right. What is life like for kind of the average East Berliner? Life, life is tough because, uh, at, especially at the beginning of the occupation, there is a worldwide famine in 1946, and so the United States and, and the other Western allies are, are pulling out all the stops. We, we send representatives to South America and to Africa and to, to Canada and Australia, and there, there are very few uh, actual food exporting nations. Most people are either food neutral or, or, or food importers, and so the, uh, the United States pulls out all stops and, and spends a ton of millions of dollars in order to get our hands on the grain to ship to the western part of Germany to ensure that those those folks don't starve. At the same time, the Soviet Union is one of those victims of this famine. Uh, they their their uh, their agri main agricultural regions are not getting rain. They're they're simply. Uh, drying up, and so the Soviet Union is is a famine area, and they don't have enough to ship uh, in, into their satellite countries, and and they are literally, the, you know, some areas of Berlin are down to 900 calories per person for per day. People are literally starving to death, and if not starving, then they're subject to the diseases that right, accompany right. hunger and starvation, and so it is a dismal place. Even uh, even when I was there in the 1980s, when you when you left Checkpoint Charlie from West Berlin and went into the east, it was uh, you know there there were still buildings that were pretty scarred up from from the war and and and, and it was it was a really really depressing place. I remember one of the tricks that I wanted to use when I went to visit East Berlin was to use black and white film in the camera that I was using. I didn't have to. It was already depressing enough that the black and white film didn't really make that much difference. It was, um, it was, it was tough. And so most of the people who are fleeing the East are doctors and lawyers and engineers and and uh, skilled tradesmen, people yeah. who understand that, they, that life is a whole lot better in the West, and who could afford to leave, and who can and who can afford to, to to get there. Yeah. So, at what point do we have? You know, in in many ways, in in certainly the memory of the West, it's the East German government that's kind of the big bad communist government with the Stasi, the secret police, and the really strict. Um, controls over the people. So, so is that something that happens immediately in the German Democratic Republic, or does is it phased in over time, like this wall is? It's it's uh, it's really phased in, because and the reason that I say that 
is is they pretty quickly in 1945 the Soviets bring in a guy named Walter Ulbricht who is a German communist. He's he's fled Hitler's Hitler's Germany and uh, spent the war in Moscow. And uh, and so as soon as the the war is over, Stalin brings uh, Ulbricht in. As a German, he's he's giving the Germans some semblance of a of a of a government of the Germans and by the Germans, but it's all they're all communists. He uh, Stalin actually brings in a number of um, pretty upstanding citizens, pretty well regarded German citizen, and he makes them the head of his departments. But we're serving underneath all of these up up outstanding citizens is is a dedicated communist. And so Ulbricht one, at one point says, look, it has to look democratic, but we're going to keep all of the power in our own hands. Ulbricht eventually rises to become the the head of all of East Germany. But the Soviet Union and East Germany never actually sign a peace treaty, at least not uh, not not in the 1960s when we've got the Berlin crisis. Uh, Khrushchev and the and the East Germans want the West out of Berlin, and so Khrushchev threatens to sign a peace treaty with the East Germans. And if he does that, that gives the East Germans the credibility and the legitimacy to say, "Hey, we are a sovereign nation. We want the West out," and there wouldn't be much that we could do about it. We we could insist on our right to remain, but it would be kind of a much weaker argument than. The Soviets trying to push us out, and so the East Germans are are constantly uh, trying to exert their own influence, but it's but always in the background are, are the Soviets who who approve and disapprove, uh, kind of in in the shadows, whatever it is that the East Germans are doing, and so um, so it, it's an awful lot of times it seems like we're dealing with the East Germans, we're not. We're dealing with the Soviets, and and everything that is occurring in East Germany is a, is a Soviet-approved uh, kind of solution. So, kind of taking on that U.S.-Soviet conflict, because one of the things that we talk about is that Berlin seems to be the flashpoint or the epicenter for a lot of the East-West conflict, particularly in these early years. Yeah. So, uh, it was just uh, doing a little bit of research before, and uh, there were up to four hundred thousand U.S. soldiers just in Germany in the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, so to put that into context, that's almost the entire active duty U.S. Army now. Right. Just in Germany. In 2021. Uh, so can you talk to us about what that, uh, con uh, about the tensions that Germany, that, uh, that, that Berlin, excuse me, is yeah. placing on this increasing powder keg, because you don't just put 400,000 soldiers in a place that you don't intend to fight in. Right. So in 1961, we, were, we talked about the, the Berlin crisis, where Khrushchev is, is threatening to sign a, a peace treaty with, um, with the East Germans, which would push the United States out, uh, could potentially push the United States out of East Germany. Kennedy says, we're not leaving. This is the, the, the Berlin crisis. He says, if it takes nuclear weapons to stay in Berlin, we're going to stay in Berlin. And so this, this causes a number of problems. 
the Soviets won us out, the East Germans won the Western powers out. But it, it, is, it is kind of, it is reminiscent of Cuba, or it should remind one of the situation in Cuba, which is Cuba is a communist outpost in the backyard of the United States, the, the democratic bastion uh, or the bastion of democracy uh, felt throughout the world. And, and at, but at the same time, Berlin is, is this democratic outpost with the Western powers being there in the heart of Soviet communism. And so one of the ways that, that Berlin causes an international problem is during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy wants to get the Soviet missiles that the, out of Cuba. One of the ways he can do that is to bomb them and blow them up. He can invade the island and simply take them over. But anything that he does in Cuba is going to ignite a reciprocal response towards Berlin. And so we've, uh, Kennedy has already come out and said we, are, we will defend Berlin with nuclear weapons. Should we take out Cuba, the Soviets take out Berlin. We, we launched our nuclear missiles, they launched theirs, and there goes... There goes the neighborhood, right? And so that is constantly a, a, an underlying tension between the United States and Cuba. Now, 400,000 soldiers in Germany is a far cry from what Eisenhower had ever allowed uh, as, as, a, uh, as a standing force. And so one of the ways that, that Kennedy is trying to avoid nuclear weapons being your only option is he... he exponentially expands the size of the military in Germany and giving him another option besides nuclear weapons. Should the East Germans or the Soviets decide that they want to expel the Western powers from Berlin, he doesn't just have to rely on nuclear weapons. He, he's got a, uh, an army group or, or a number of them that, that he can he can turn to. And so, yes, throughout the Cold War, Berlin is all, I mean, Berlin is where all the spy novels take place and all the spy movies and Cold War espionage and that kind of kind of thing. Um, but it, it is always a source of tension and, and how we are going to protect it, how we're going to deal with it, and how the Soviets are going to try and leverage it. I think that's a really good analogy you give us that, that, you know, the United States spent a whole lot of time after 1959 worried about Cuba because it's right off the coast of Florida. But, of course, Berlin is right in the middle of a communist country. Right. So it's kind of the same problem. Yeah. And, and, and you've also you, you've helped us to understand just how complex all of this is, because if you, you know, it's like a blanket. If you push one section of it, the rest of it moves. Right. And so Kennedy's about to get into Vietnam, which is going to complicate this even further. Yeah, exactly. So the, so then you've also got this idea, uh, the idea of containment, right? I mean, and and largely backed up by the domestic politics. Right? Everybody after Truman looks and sees what happened to him for when when the uh, when domestic politics says you're soft on communism. It's one of the reasons LBJ went into Vietnam. He said they'd probably impeach a president that allowed communism to, to spread, wouldn't they? And so he, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that he, he expands the American presence in Vietnam is, is simply domestic politics. It's a, it's a thing that's got to be 
dealt with and and recognized as as a as a real player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course we see the same on the other side, right? Not just domestically within the Soviet Union, but within the republics, within kind of the satellite states, the Warsaw Pact. You see some of the same politics too, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, you 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 can't you can't allow the the um, you can't allow the satellite states to to really start um, exercising power, start uh, uh, doing their going their own way, and 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 that. Well, let's talk about something uh, you, you mentioned, uh, like this freedom uh, outpost of freedom, kind of in the center of uh, yeah. this communist country. So, but it's also uh, almost a strategic liability in many ways, right? Because you have to defend it. So, uh, for the U.S. Army, that of course is the Berlin Brigade, mm-hmm. who everyone kind of assumed that if a war kicked off, they would fight like warrior poets and they would be destroyed very, very quickly. But why not just back out? I mean, it's it's a small city. Why not just the destroyed s- city? Uh, so <laughs> uh, in 1945, certainly. So why not just leave? Why stay? Then what are you going to give up after that, right? I mean, so so it's a zero-sum game. Um, anytime that, that you are giving up something, you're losing something. And, 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 and the idea that you would actually be gaining something by not... Uh, by by eliminating tension between the United States and the Soviet Union again, imagine how the other party is going to react in in American domestic politics for losing Berlin. I mean, uh, even I don't remember 1949 when we lost China. That's that's a little bit be, uh, be, beyond my years, but. You know, the very idea that we could have held on to China uh, be- simply because we chose to, or the idea that anybody lost China, uh, is really, really kind of over, overemphasizes, kind of, kind of stretches the credibility to what we can do in this world. I mean, we, we like to think that we can, we're a superpower, we can push people around, but even, even the United States has limitations on what we can do. So we've got Berlin as almost this symbol of not only our resistance to communism, but also just the symbol of all the tension and the uh, the conflict of the Cold War. So but the other side of that, I think that's also worth pointing out, um, it's also a symbol to the communists, right? It's a symbol of, of Western imperialism, to put it in their language. So that I think that analogy kind of works both ways, and I, th- I think I think what we have is that that Berlin is a symbol in both directions, which is why it has an importance that may look a little bit beyond just a city that's divided, like so many other places are. Yeah, that you know that that just um, brings up a great point, which is the fundamental difference in the way. The United States and the Soviet Union views World War II, right? I mean, it is it is still the the great patriotic war in, in the Soviet Union. It is it is still a very very much talked about. Very the the main players very much still revered. Um, it's a little bit different for us in the United States. I mean, we 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 think that uh, hey, we won the war and in uh, that, but. I lived in in Russia for six months on a Fulbright, and and the uh, the, the most 
most asked question of me while I was there was who won World War Two, right. and and they and and everybody everybody was just waiting for me to say, well, the United States did, and because obviously we're. Uh, we're, uh, we just think that the United States is so great. The United States does everything. And the fact of the matter is, is the, the Soviet Union lost way more soldiers than we ever did. And they were right waiting for that recognition. And Berlin, I mean, shoot, the, the Soviets built a monument, a tomb to the unknown soldier in the middle of Berlin that's still there. I mean, the, it's kind of an awkward relationship, I would think. But the Germans are still taking care of this Soviet monument to the dead right. uh, in Berlin. So, yeah, every every bit a, a symbol of the sacrifice of the Soviets in World War II, and the uh, and just a, as a reminder, I think to to the East Germans while the Cold War is going on. Hey, remember this this is what happened yeah. Uh, here. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point. So let's fast forward now about 25 years. We've got the wall built. We've got this, you know, an East Berlin and an East Germany that is, is not so much failing as never really got off the ground as an economy, right? Yeah. So it's the mid-1980s. The Soviet Union's having problems. They've wandered into Afghanistan. How do we go from a solid Soviet bloc with East Germany, East Berlin as part of it, to the fall of the Berlin Wall? Wow. So there's a fair amount there to unpack, and it and it's um, it, it it takes place. This this is a process that takes place over dozens of years, but but certainly during the 1980s, Afghanistan certainly didn't help. Uh, the the idea that the, the Soviet Union is spending tons of money in Afghanistan. Trying to trying to win that war, but trying to end it as well. But communism is not an efficient way to do business. It costs a ton of money to have a communist nation where where there's little incentive to work. I'm I'm working on a project that looks at the Soviet Union sending 12 farmers to the United States to figure out what the secret of American productivity on the farm is. Of course, they've got these collectivized farms, right? They've got, they've, uh, and they figure out that they're, they're using four times the manpower on their collective farms than we are for the same proportion of land, right? So, so for 100 acres, 160 acres, one farmer and his family can farm that. In the Soviet Union, you've got four families uh, farm in that. It, it is so in, inefficient the way that they do things. And so those four farmers, or the, those 12 farmers come to the United States in 1955 to figure out the secret to American productivity. And the secret is the harder you work, the more money you make. Right. The secret is capitalism. <laughs> the secret is capitalism, which fundamentally doesn't work in a communist, in, in a communist framework. Right. Right. And so this is the culmination of years and years of really bad finance, uh, fiscal policy and, and financial commitments. Be because the Soviet Union is incredibly inefficient, so are all of those other satellite states. Poland and Hungary and East Germany and, and you name the satellite state, they're getting tons of economic aid from the Soviet Union. 
and the the Soviets, the Soviet Politburo is is, is basically in, in, unable to think any differently about how to run the economic piece of, of their ideology of, of their government. They cannot see that that this is simply just not going to work in in the long term. I mean, there's there there are a number of great books out these days about the the, the end of communism, the end of uh, the end of the Soviet Union, and uh, and it's a complicated process. But some sum it up to say that they, they simply did not, they, they were depleting their, their monetary reserves and unable to replace them because of this absolutely inefficient process. And so they're constantly trying to produce uh, heavy industrial goods at the expense of consumer goods. You've got people who are incredibly unhappy with, uh, with their way of life. You got people in East Berlin, they know how the people in West Berlin are living, they've, they've seen it, and that's what they want. And, and the, the communist framework is simply unable to deliver what the people want. And so there's this, this pressure, this, this constant building up of, of tensions with the, with the government and, um, and, and by the people, this pre pressure between the government and the people, not just in the Soviet Union, but in, in all of the Eastern Bloc now, states. Now, uh, kind of moving into the events of the 1980s, could you talk a little bit about how events in Poland and then Hungary are interacting with events in East Germany, which are going to culminate in the fall of the wall? Yeah. So so this is is a bit simplistic, but, but what happens is Gorbachev comes to power and, and he, he understands this tension between the government and the people. He says, look, we, we got to figure out how we can ease this tension. We got to figure out how to get the people what they want, and, and we get, but, but using the communist model. He's, he's not about to abandon communism for, for something else. Um, he, the one part that's constantly overlooked is he's still a devote communist. Right. We, we just got to make some fundamental changes to how we administer this thing. And, uh, and, and then we can get back to, to you know, taking, taking over the world or whatever it is that they're looking at doing. And so uh, Hungary, as we talked about a little bit earlier, is a really interesting case study because, as we talked about in, in 1956, the Soviet Union crushes the, the uprising that is taking place as people are looking for democratic institutions. And, and then Gorbachev tells the people of, of, the, 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 um, of Eastern Europe, look, it is up to you guys to figure out how you want to live. It's up to you guys to figure out the government that you want. Now, initially, what he's thinking is, what kind of communist government do right. you want? And how are we going to make this work? But 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 then you know kind of one thing leads to another and 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 people start talking to people and now you you've got the idea of multi-party elections going on hey if communists you guys can run for government too you can run for office as well but but we got some other ideas about how we want to do things and and actually the leader of the the Hungarian government goes to Gorbachev and says look we Hey, hey, boss, we got these multi-party elections coming up next year. Are you okay with this? Because tell me now before we start start lopping off heads and and crushing 
demonstrations and that sort of thing. Gorbachev says, look, I, I'm no fan of multi-party elections, but you guys need to figure this thing out on your own. And so not only does Hungary have these multi-party elections, but they also kind of bring back the, these, these, or they build these monuments to the, the martyrs of 1956. And these people are celebrated. Their names are, are spoken out loud for, for the first time in, in decades. As, as kind of the leaders of, of this idea of, of, of self-government and, and, and rule by the people. And so the, the Hungary does have these multi-party elections and non-communists are elected. In fact, the, um, the Hungarians tear down the wall, the, the barbed wire fence between Hungary and Austria, and people start exiting. They, the people from hung, uh, Hungary are exiting through Austria and, and going to po points further west. And the Soviets are okay with that. At least they don't intervene. Some very confused Austrians, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so in Poland, uh, you guys probably remember uh, uh, Lech Walesa and, and Pope John Paul II, who are enormous figures in the uh, solidarity movement, in, in the anti-communist movement, or, or at least the, the pro democratic movement. And, and the same thing essentially happens in Poland. In 1981, the, the Soviets tell the Poles to crush this opposition movement called Solidarity and, and people imprisoned and, um, and the party broken up. But, but that didn't stop a number of key people like the unions and uh, going on strike to, to demonstrate against communism. And, and by 1988, the Polish government is ready to share power. They have roundtable conversations between communists and, and this opposition group Solidarity to talk about how they can move forward with, with uh, in sharing power. And in, uh, in 1989, the, the first uh, multi-party elections in Poland take place and communists are voted out of office. I think 99 out of 100 senators in the communist um, government are voted out and and so and the communists don't intervene and, and so it's a fundamental and seismic shift in in the way people are thinking about about government now interestingly in East Germany not much is happening because they have a dedicated communist leader in Eric Honecker who's like yeah they're sure there are hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating they want changes like they're seeing elsewhere and Honecker is like oh no we we're not changing anything I, I like staying in power I, I like the way things are going and and so it's up to the uh, the East German Politburo to actually vote him out of office and uh, and start making some of those fundamental changes that are happening elsewhere. So we've got these kind of macro changes taking place throughout the 1980s, um, it, it related, as you mentioned, to economic and fiscal issues. How then do we get to the actual fall of the wall in 1989? The East Germans are demanding change, and, and the most visible uh, pain for the East Germans is this wall. It separates family members. Um, it, it's, it fundamentally divides a city. It, it is a symbol. So you got, the, the communists keep talking about what a bright future that there is. And, and uh, just, you know, in a few years, just imagine how wonderful things are going to be. And, and the East Germans are like, look, stop it. 
Stop talking about how great things are going to be. That only makes people angry. So uh, the, the, probably nothing more symbolized the empty promises of communism and no, no object existed like the wall that the people could de de devote their or, or project their anger towards. And so while all while these other elections are going on throughout Eastern Europe, there are demonstrations with hundreds of thousands of people demanding change. Gorbachev has said he's okay with change. Gorbachev has allowed change to happen elsewhere, but the East Germans have not. And so on, uh, on November 4th, 1989, a half a million people show up at the wall and demand change. So, so this is something you, you can't just ignore this, right? I mean, this this is not going to go away. You also can't really disperse a crowd that large. This is a fundamental difference. I mean, people up until, you know, the, the late 80s have not had the courage to get out and demonstrate. Bad things happen to those who go out and demonstrate usually. But this strength in numbers is it's it's a just a movement that that has to be heard. You, you can't necessarily just wish it away. And so the, the, the government understands that, that it's only building in momentum. You've got 100,000 people, then 200, then 300, then 500,000 people showing up to demonstrate. What is, is next? Where is this going to go? And, and so on November 9th, the, the East German government holds a press conference and says, all right, you know, we are going to open the gates. We, we're going to allow the, 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 this intermingling of people from East and West. And then, of course, the, the story is that uh, hey, nobody said when these changes were going to take place. So all anybody hears is there's going, they're going to open the gates. And so hundreds of thousands of people rush to the wall on both sides of the wall. And nobody would make a decision about what does this mean? What... The government said they're going to open the gates, but nothing's happening. The border guards are getting no direction from their bosses. They're, hey, do we shoot these people or do we open the gates, right? I mean, which is it going to be? Because the crowd's getting ugly. Right. And so finally, the, the border guard, the, the commander of the border guards makes the decision to open up the gates. And, and from there, it's just, it's just momentum. Like, uh, you can't just open up the gates and, and then expect to go backwards. I mean, you can only expect to go forwards. And, and that's, as we were talking about at the beginning of this segment, so the, so the Cold War doesn't end on November 9th with, with the fall of the wall or the opening of the wall. It's, it hasn't even fallen, right? It's just you've opened the gates and allowed people to mingle. But, but it's a symbol of, of what, is, what is to come, right? I mean, the, people understand that, that the government is fundamentally going to change in East Germany. The Cold War has fundamentally taken a turn. Um, it's not over. It's not changed. It's, it's, not, uh, it, it's just a symbol of, 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 a, of a turning point, right? And so, so monumental changes are yet to come, but it is, it is a turning point in the sense that everybody can look at this and, and see the, the tide has, has changed. So what are the next steps in Germany? Now that the, the gates are opened, as you've said, mm -hmm. I, I, the wall is going to be dismantled kind of in pieces, right? How do we yeah. go from gates open to reunified Germany? I believe it was in 1992. 
Yeah. So uh, when I when I was there, uh, this was although this was a long time coming. My impression from the time was it, it seemed to to take a lot of people by surprise, and and one of the things that I, I that I was stunned uh, uh, in realizing was there was no guarantee that Germany was going to reunify at this point. I mean, probably we we hope so, but West Germany understood how absolutely backwards. Uh, everything, how, how time had, had ceased to move forward in, in the East, and that it was going to take a lot of cash to, to have the, uh, the East catch up with, with um, you know, technologically, educationally, and it, the infrastructure that was going to be needed. And I, I rem remember the, the, uh, the conversations about, that, hey, d West Germany d may not necessarily want East Germany back. Yet you, we might have to, the UN might have to kick in a little little cash to make this happen. But I, I remember, you know, the, the East German refugees uh, in in their three cylinder oil burning trabies. I, th I think they were the name of the car was it was a trabie. I I think and they were they were loud and they 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 belched smoke and they were, you know, a, a if anything served as a symbol of the. You know the backwardness of of East Germany. It, it was the the family car and how terribly unreliable it was. They, they were breaking down all the time on the autobahn, as as I recall. Uh, and so that was the biggest uh, red flag for me. Was hey hey, it, it, everything seems to be going well, but there are real world complications in this fairy tale ending about the reunification of Germany. And, and of course, they they eventually did. They they eventually figured it out. But um, but but I remember thinking, well, wait, what was all of this for? You know, if you don't want East Germany back, if you're going to make East Germany just kind of fend for themselves, then what were we doing this whole time? I mean, the unification reunification of of East and West was was about more than just the end of the Cold War, I think. It was, it was more about a, a, uh, an end of an era, an end of a, um, an end of a really bad idea, uh, for lack of a, a, a better term. So, um, I, but, uh, What's interesting is, is that, of course, the fall of the Berlin Wall was not the end of history. Uh, no. With apologies uh, <laughs> to historians from the, from the early 1990s. Right. But that said, there was that moment, right? And uh, in, if I remember, if I recall correctly, you were actually living in Germany at the time frame. Yeah, I was, and uh, so was I, uh, a little bit younger. Uh, <laughs> but there was that moment. Can you talk about just? So we've talked about some of the practical reasons, but let's actually talk about just the feel, the mo of what that felt like. My my goodness. Um, so. I, I was, every battalion in Germany, even when you go home at night, somebody's got to be on call. Somebody's got to be around to answer the phone, right? So, so if the president calls or, or somebody uh, decides that we need to go to war, somebody needs to be around to answer the phone. And so I was, I was that guy on November 9th, 1989. Where, uh, where I was hoping it was just going to be a quiet night. and As all staff duty officers <laughs> do, right? <laughs> right. 
and and so and so I, I remember you know early on th- things were coming over the radio think you know the intelligence folks are like hey sir it's gonna be a long night I don't know what's going on but something's up and and so uh, the, the opening of the wall really caught uh, it caught me by surprise I think it caught a lot of people by surprise people people understood that change was happening but but this quickly today's the day that uh, that the wall is opening and so that was that was a a seismic shift. I mean, there are, there are a couple of days in, in people's lifetime that they probably remember, like 9/11. Uh, for those a, a little bit older than me, when when Kennedy was shot, um, the, these fundamental mileposts in, in through in world history, and this was one of them. Um, you know, the, the idea that the world was changing right in front of us and 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 it's it, it sounds like a good thing i mean the, you know it could could have gone one of two ways maybe uh, could the balloon could go up we could exchange nuclear weapons but may, maybe the best of all possible worlds is 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 just showing itself to us right now like this is this is a this is an example of what could be right this is a promise of of things to come and and uh, and i remember just just being awestruck at the possibilities, right? The, the, the what the the, uh, the the idea of the possible. If if this can happen, you know what what else, what else can happen? And and so to to your point about the end of history, there were a lot of folks that overreacted to the idea of uh, of the the art of the possible, right? I mean, the the end of history. Well, you know, everything's good news from here on out. And no, not not necessarily. And so therein lies the trick: is is figuring out what what do you do with this with this milepost in in world history? You, you, does it just happen, or does it need guidance and and uh, and nurturing and and, uh, and 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 some folks to actually figure out what does this mean? Because a whole lot of people got it wrong. What does this thing mean going forward? Well, it means that the Cold War is over and we can do whatever we want in the world. Nope, that that that, that wasn't it, right? And so, um, but to get back to your your point, it, it was an incredibly emotional realization that uh, that there was this turning point in history. Well, it was a fascinating conversation and an excellent first-person perspective. Well, thanks. Thank you for being thanks. with us, Dr. Mills. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to to talk about old war stories and and that, and that sort of thing. I, I re- really thank you. Yeah, great discussion. Thank you much.